This is the Marxist Poetry Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Roy, and the first conversation is with Carl Cassia, at Carl Cassia on Twitter. At some point, I think we're going to have to do a why are we doing this type episode, but for now, just enjoy the interview. Thanks. Carl's fine for now, I suppose. And you just wrote a piece about George Oppen and anti-fascism. Yeah, like, it only took about an hour, but it was probably, I think I threw away about ten drafts before I finally got to the one that wound up being used. No, no, it's good. It turned into a sort of de facto history of poets I don't like, and then I was like, this is irrelevant, and I deleted it and decided on a one-page limit. I mean, that's a good uh, thing to live by for a minute. Translated enough long-winded manifestos in my day to like not want to have to do 20 pages of it in a go, in a go ever again. Yeah, that's pretty smart. What what manifestos have you translated? Can you translate from Spanish? Yeah, mostly Spanish. I mean, I work out of Portuguese very, very slowly and with no real confidence and can do French like if I have to do something at work that requires a recipe to be translated or whatever. But uh, most of the Spanish stuff that I did was... I did all the Inferialist manifestos, I did all the Stridentist manifestos, and I probably six or seven other ones. The Nothingists from Columbia were, was another one of the big projects, and then like, you know, the odd one here and there that sort of abutted something that I was working on. That's cool, and those are mostly communist-type movements. Oh yeah, they're all sort of, you know, post-World War II leftist avant-garde political movements in Latin America. Yeah, I think a lot of them would have been like 68 movements too. Uh, the nothingists are from before that. They were the first nothingist thing that I ever saw was from about 1963. But they sort of hit their heyday around 68, 69 like everybody else did, yeah. Right. right that's, cool. Oh, that's cool. The infurrealists, of course, were a little bit later than the rest of the crew. They were sort of the last of that original wave of Marxy avant-garde sort of trash poets yeah most people know them because of bolaño and and you also named this after oppen who sort of is one of those other people who came along a bit earlier but really kind of hit a stride in the 60s yeah i mean i think the the oppen thing for me is mostly a reference to the idea that there's a, a separation between poetry and political action uh and that there's a time for for one to take precedence and a time for another and i think that like recent events uh in poetry world have sort of convinced me one that i'm not done dealing with it which is unfortunate because i'd like to be uh but also that you know the there's there's shit going on that a sestina isn't going to fix but like those of us who feel the same way getting together and sort of putting some pushback on these well-funded assholes might at least give us an opportunity to open up enough room to have a proper fight about it at least. Yeah. And that's part of it too, that these, uh, this new round of assholes seem to be quite well funded and not likely to go away. Well, they've all virtually all of them have been canceled once already. And like, this is their like zombie return, like Jason in the fucking fifth Friday the 13th movie or something. I'm quite over it. Yeah, and I mean, but I mean, I think at this point, when you look at who they're associating with on the on the far right, the cancellation is really just a selling point for them. 
Very much so, very much so. And that is extremely disturbing to me. And is, you know, I mean, essentially the point of putting together like a small sort of unofficial banner um, and sort of making it known to them that they're not just gonna do this shit. Like they, they're going to receive some resistance from somebody. Oh, sorry, who are they gonna receive resistance from? Uh, somebody, probably me, um, and maybe others who would prefer to remain anonymous right now. Oh, uh, no, you just cut out for a second on mine. I, saw, I was wondering who you said. Who you said. Right on. Yeah, but it is worrying that they've got this sort of far-right money attracted to them now. And I think uh, we've already seen how that can prop up movements and astroturf them. And, you know, there's not much money in the poetry world, so it is a bit worrying to see money coming into this kind of thing. Well, and money with a specific agenda, um, you know, I like, you know, as I said in the manifesto, I think that they're basically pre-gaming a war on degenerate art, quote unquote, which will actually be a war on things like the NEA and the fact that colleges pay people money to study this kind of poetry, uh, you know, and some of that money is public money and so on. Uh, so it's probably going to be like the Robert Maplethorpe controversy reheated for a new fascier era. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's going to—it's pretty worrying too, considering the way poetry's gone the last few years. A lot of inclusion of queer trans artists and uh, people of color, and I just think they're going to definitely try and attack this this new movement that's kind of uh, popped up. And the problem is a lot of the people supporting. Uh, these folks are, are liberals and you know I, I've seen what liberal how liberals argued during st- online stuff like Gamergate and since then and it's just been they've been disastrous at protecting these people and obviously platforms like Twitter and even Discord are pretty incompetent when it comes to well not incompetent they're willfully you know aiding this stuff because it drives engagement Right. And I think that the liberalism of the overwhelming majority of a certain subset of American poets is like a very serious problem. Um, You know, I lived in Philly for 15 some odd years. I was very, very much a part of the scene there in all the conventional ways. And um, the, the liberalness just became smothering after a while. And it's very... <clears throat> you know, now having written that article about Sherlock and ha- it's, you know, it having circulated out there, uh, friends of mine are calling me to tell me about their awkward conversations about it. And, you know, people are refusing to discuss it on the grounds that it's gossip. People are assassinating my character in one way or another, which is pretty easy to do. Uh, or, you know, a- any other thing other than copying to the fact that they had this guy not just among them, but sort of like eleva- in an elevated position among them for a decade. And, you know, only the white people in Philly, I think, really took him seriously. Um, but, you know, Eastern poetry, I don't know about the West Coast because I've never really been out there, but on the East Coast, the poetry is really aggressively segregated, uh, you know, and the sort of, quote, serious, quote, art, quote, avant-garde stuff is all white people shit happening in colleges, almost exclusively. Uh, and, you know, with some overlap into places like the Poetry Project or whatever, which are very institutionally solid, not colleges, but they're not like, you know, they're not, it's not a space or like some sort of anarchist collective space or whatever. Um, and then all of the people of color with a few, with a few exceptions are slam poets who are downtown 
somewhere doing their thing and the you know the poets with master de master's degrees aesthetically take a lot of shits on that kind of thing uh etc so it got there you know i mean there was a racial element to the the daily lived experience of poetry in the east coast for me for a long time and then when it popped up that this dude who'd, who'd been around forever had been a nazi at one point in his life uh, if you believe that nazis can change and um it was really unsurprising to me because the the you know it would never have come up like those people could really say oh we didn't know he was a nazi because it's just a bunch of white people talking about white people shit you know and like unless somebody's like how do you feel about jews like which they're never going to do um it just doesn't come up and so he was sort of able to elide this very important thing and you know and sort of make it disappear in a way that like the reaction amongst people in Philly was just annoyed that it was brought up really more than anything. And they were really annoyed that it came out at all. They were really annoyed that the Inquirer wrote about it. And then they were annoyed that I expanded on what the Inquirer had to say, mostly by researching it a little more. Um, and, you know, the point being that they're not going to engage with that problem in any way other than like a very stereotypically liberal way of like denying that they knew about it or downplaying its importance or, you know, critiquing the people who bring it up. Yeah, and the evidence you brought up was pretty damning because it's literally pictures of him in uh, Nazi Nazi uh, metal bands and stuff. And it's pretty, I mean, re having read your article and read some of the other coverage, it's pretty undeniable that he was a Nazi. And it's also really disconcerting to, well, disconcerting but not surprising to hear liberals say, oh, it's just, it's just gossip as if there aren't literal pictures of him in Nazi bands. And, you know, the like with records out that you can go back and listen to the lyrics and hear him, you know, saying influential white supremacist lines that you hear today. And I guess this gets to something we mock about the liberal poets all the time is that all they ask for is forgiveness and a kind of quest for their own uh, forgiveness in their own uh, with respect to their own subjectivities. And there's never that broader commitment to the political that you see in a lot of the leftist art you just you were talking about at the beginning well right and you know as was the case with the sherlock thing and is the case in the sort of like poetry of begging for forgiveness uh you know i mean contrition is required and in order for there to be contrition you have to admit to having done something wrong and the overwhelming thing about these kind of liberals poets or otherwise is that they don't really believe that they've ever really done anything wrong because unlike the rest of us who actually have to live day to day with the consequences of these kinds of politics, uh, you know, they don't really. Uh, and their intentions are what they pay attention to. Whereas for the rest of us, we pay attention to the effect, regardless of what people say, because the people knifing us in the back always claim to have the best intention. Yeah, right. Like you were saying, they were more concerned that you were causing a problem by bringing this up than the actual uh, existence of a Nazi in their midst. It, you you were the problem for saying there's a Nazi among you, not the fact that there was a Nazi among them. Right. And, you know, they were annoyed at, say, Raquel Celis Rivera, who took a pretty hard line on it. Um, and, you know, and the way that broke out in Philly was the white people whined and complained about having to talk about it. And all the people of color, all the queer people were totally unsurprised at the overwhelming whiteness of the Philadelphia poetry community because it's a smotheringly white scene. Right. And that gets to the, your, what you said at the beginning too, about 
feeling that we can't ignore politics and poetry anymore. And that's something I've kind of long felt, especially, you know, back, even back during like, you know, the Bush administration, I'd say there was a real need for political poetry, but a real refusal from the establishment to even consider doing political poetry. And that only really changed with Trump, but it seems more of a desire to return to quote unquote normalcy than a desire to actually confront the structure of white supremacy as your, I think your story shows. Well, right. And in one of the drafts of the manifesto that I trashed, the one that I saved, uh, you know, I just flat out called it Nancy Pelosi poetry, you know, i.e. poetry that's perfectly willing to do a little performative complaining, but is in no way interested in even discussing the nature of the system and how it functions and how it could be altered to better serve people. Right. Right. And I think like something that you were getting at too is the way that poets of color and uh, queer and trans poets don't receive institutional support. It's something that's been a, you know, there's been a few big, you know, episodes about this with like the Poetry Foundation. And I think with uh, Nightboat, not like paying or, you know, botching serious efforts at creating queer and trans issues or anthologies. And it's it's pretty wild to see that all there's all this institutional money, but it seems to go mostly to white supremacists, whether it's uh, Sherlock or uh, Kenneth Goldsmith. Right, and I, undoubtedly Kenneth Goldsmith is a white supremacist, and his name should probably be added to the list of fascist poets in the manifesto now that I think about it. But, um, well, I, you know, to me, like, as a person who spends a lot of time it's been four or five years since I've written a poem and I've spent that entire time researching fascism and writing things about it. Um, you know, and overwhelmingly the people who founded the foundations that currently fund arts, the arts in this country were almost exclusively doctrinaire fascists, not entirely, but the DuPont, the Ford, the Pew, the MacArthur, all of those people, those were all fascists between the 30s and the 40s. Um, Aaron A. DuPont was very closely aligned with a faction that, you know, made feelers toward launching a fascist coup in the early 30s. You know, so it goes, the shit goes pretty far. Um, you know, and in the 30s, there were, there were fascist street gangs, just like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer and shit, uh, who were beating up union organizers and breaking picket lines and smashing up communist union halls and the same same nothing has really changed uh so you know and this was an argument that i had in philly a lot with people because a lot of the people that i was hanging out with had had either won or were starting to win grants from the pew foundation and those are a lot of fucking money um those are 75k now that's a lot of fucking money and you know I, the question I asked, which was basically deemed inadmissible, was, well, what do you think they think they're buying with that money? And just to bring the question up was just totally inappropriate in everybody's opinion. And nobody ever answered it straight. Like, nobody ever, ever, ever answered it at all. Um, you know, and I watched people who I, you know, because at one time, like, I had a modicum of respect for Frank Sherlock. Uh, and watching the thing that made, this first started to crack that for me uh, was watching him cape around for the Pew Foundation. He made a television commercial for the Pew Foundation in which he's like walking down a very gentrified public street talking about how great it is 
to have the approval of an institution, like in those words, even, you know, and like that to me was fucked up. Um, and around the same time, some friends of mine were leading an attempt to organize the adjunct workers at Temple, a noble task to be sure, unless what you do is you couch your entire union effort in the language of a deprivileged labor aristocracy, which is exactly what they did. Uh, you know, the argument was basically, hey, we did everything we're supposed to do, and now you're treating us like we work at McDonald's. That's not okay. Um, you know, and that is, that's not solidarity with working people. That's not, that's not any kind of communism or any kind of leftism at all. Um, that's a, like, you know, that's liberalism, basically. And I objected to the angle that the union was taking and uh, basically got nothing but the eternal enmity of some former friends over it and not, like nothing whatsoever changed. And no one had ever even really addressed the concerns that were raised. Right. And I do, I do an account on Twitter, like the, it's called the Mar Marxist poetry. And one of the things I found reading, one of the things I found reading through the new masses archives is um, a debate between uh, Harriet Monroe of uh, an editor of poetry magazine and a communist uh, editor named uh, Stanley Burnshaw. And, you know, the thing that happened, the, what was interesting about the, like the most interesting part of the debate to me between a communist poet and the institutional poetry magazine person was just that Burnshaw revealed that Harriet Monroe hadn't even like been aware of this rising communist poetry movement in 1930 until 1934 when she was told about it by Stanley Burnshaw. And what you see too, to connect to your earlier point about these institutions being funded by white supremacists is you see, you know, poetry magazine and other institutions like that publishing really fascist writers like Ezra Pound and, you know, suppressing his work where he actually outs himself as a fascist and just focusing on, Oh, isn't this, you know, isn't this just his innovative work where he talks about the, I don't know, the odyssey in really abstract terms. And they never publish, say, his explicitly fascist messages. And that sort of covering up of the fascist roots of these organizations has been kind of the trademark of them uh, right down to the present. I don't disagree in any way, and I think that it's the situation is actually like if you peel it back another layer, even more alarming because you know modernism in this country largely descends to us from Henry James through Pound and Eliot, and Pound and Eliot were absolute fascists, Pound especially, but Eliot was was overtly a monarchist from about 1936 or so on. Um, you know, like he's famous for having said, the point of view is classical in culture, Catholic in religion, and monarchist in politics. That's a fascist position. The fact that he was like polite about it or whatever is just part of his like a feat pseudo Englishness. Uh, but you know, the aesthetics of high modernism pre World War II are fascist aesthetics, and then after World War II, you have a very obvious shift in the literary culture being engineered. Uh, that, you know, destroys the left, pushes the entire thing into the academy, sort of sanctifies these fascists and rips the politics out of it and puts everybody on a stipend. And the result is this incredibly moribund, depoliticized, you know, the sort of literary equivalent of like ninth generation abstract expressionists like 
which is something no one would ever even think about going to look at in a gallery, if it could even get into a gallery. But it is essentially what runs a certain portion of our literary community, which is functionally ghettoized. I mean, I live in a town in the Midwest, a college town in the Midwest, and, you know, the next person who walks down my street, I'll stop them and ask them if they've ever heard of Charles Olson, and they're going to look at me like I'm a complete fucking maniac. Although Olson, I do not consider to have been a fascist in any way. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did learn. I did learn something interesting about him recently that I think one of his publishers had been a white supremacist and even turns up at Arkansas to, I mean, a little rock to uh, protest uh, the desegregation of the school there. But that's, you know, that's another matter. But I think uh, what's, you know, what, what the poetry establishment kind of reminds me of is sometimes this, I like that. There was this country song that got put out by uh, the Fox news TV show, the five and the, the whole, like the whole course of the song is just shut up about politics. And of course, obviously by saying that, you know, it's a political message, but what, what that gets at to me is kind of the mentality of a lot of poetry. Now poetry up to now, up to Trump anyways, that, you know, there, there was like a certain, thing you could talk there's a certain way of talking about the world that was okay but any anything outside of that was was political you know anything else and you become the problem anything else and you're just talking about gossip like you said and i think what that enables is a space where fascists can sort of monopolize the conversation by saying anyone who attacks us is you know abridging our free speech they're they're bring, they're the ones bringing politics into this Very, very much so, and very clearly evident in events in Portland for two or three years now, but especially this past weekend. Um, you know, and the the milieu that I sort of moved in on the East Coast, it was, you know, I would go to readings where, like I remember once going to see Alice Notley at the Poetry Project, and there being about 200 people there. And, you know, on, a, on an average guess, I would say maybe four or five of us in that room didn't have graduate degrees, you know, and like that's not to beat up on people who have graduate degrees. But, you know, a graduate degree is a class marker in a really big way. And if you have a room full of people and they all have graduate degrees, then what you have is a room full of people who are all of the same class. And that can maybe be a good thing even is depending on what goes on but like what it can't be anything other than a bad thing if no one will admit that it's the case uh and you know a lot of you know a lot of the kind of like identity politics that you see used against the left by disingenuous liberals and right-wingers now a lot of that was worked out in academic and literary cultural spaces in the 90s and 2000s and brought to this like really advanced state of like rhetoric um, and now it's basically being removed entirely from its context and used to defend people like Andy and Go and Joe Massey who are the exact kind of people that rhetoric was designed to defend against and it's really like in particular with Joe Massey it's particularly galling to me because I have known for a dozen years that that guy was an abuser of a very serious kind. And I factually know that the, you know, the people I used to run with in Philadelphia have known that for 10 years because 10 years ago, they all witnessed him commit an act of egregious abuse in public that they all later denied witnessing. 
You know, there was one person in that room out of about a dozen people who would even admit that what happened happened. And it was just shocking to me. And that was maybe the first time I saw them just sort of like do the liberal shuffle and f do a backflip and stick their head up their own ass and declare it dark out because like it just, they just weren't going to talk about it. They weren't, you know, the idea that like he was basically famous as far as anybody was concerned and they wanted the clout. They wanted the cred. They wanted to be associated with him. And, you know, it, it's the same dynamic that let Frank Sherlock exist and thrive in that same community for all of that time. And it's the same sort of shit that enabled various kinds of like ill-intentioned bullies to just like throw their weight around really aggressively whenever they were pissed off about something else or, you know, whatever. Um, and nobody stood up for shit because nobody believes in anything except their own right to air conditioning and tenure. Yeah, I think this is why like what you wrote is really important right now, because we're at a juncture where, you know, maybe if we lead a sustained assault on some of these people right now before they can pivot to a new audience, uh, we could really do some damage. Like, you know, I think what could happen here is, you know, Quillette has a different audience and a lot of poetry now has an academic audience and they could easily with this would hook up with the audience of Quillette and try and, you know, pivot to the, the alt right like a sort of alt-righty audience and do that kind of poetry. And I think we've already seen that, you know, happen in, say, like, stand-up comedy. And the same dynamic you're describing was, like, well-known about, like, say, Louis C.K. Like, I knew Louis C.K. was an abuser, like, maybe seven years ago. And I knew, I'm almost certain everyone in the comedy scene knew, knew he was an abuser for that long or even longer. But there's a refusal to face that reality by by liberals or people chasing clout just because it's expedient for their careers and they don't want to upset the institutions they can't engage in that institutional critique right and i mean joe massey is quite obviously the stephen crowder of poetry absolutely and or would like to be um and you know the that is basically my concern in a nutshell right now which is that you know like these grifters, these bad actors, these people who live in bad faith, Joe Massey, Frank Sherlock, Clint Margrave, who is the person at Quillette who brought the Frank Sherlock story to them, uh, and one or two others who have appeared on their podcast to talk about these issues, uh, they are absolutely going to take a right-wing victimhood stance, preach it to a Trumpist choir, and, you know, basically having been left out of the poetry war or pardon me out of the culture wars for most of the last decade or so for whatever reason poetry at its like academic heights is going to be dragged into this culture war that it's been you know for whatever reason isolated from mostly because nobody knows what the fuck it is or who any of us are or what the fuck we're even writing about um you know which is fair enough uh but the yeah, the obvious, like, implication of, like, let's get together with these, you know, I mean, you're going to have the Proud Boys storming poetry readings. They just went and visited Gwen Snyder in Philadelphia last night. They showed up at her house. Um, so, you know, I mean, they're around. They broke up a reading at Politics and Prose a month ago or something like that or whatever. And, like, you know, I can easily see the shit getting out of hand. And, the you know, nobody... There used to be this cafe in Philly where we all we read readings all the time for years and years and years. And, you know, I can easily imagine 
five or six Proud Boys showing up in that space and taking it over and being able to do anything they want because the white liberals are just not going to resist. You know, they're just not like and it's going to be left to like whatever person in the room feels like they're the target to get up and defend themselves. Um, so, yeah, the idea of like getting like those of like minds together and making these fucks uncomfortable in some way, shape or form seems like absolutely needed and absolutely necessary. Um, so, you know, hopefully like we can get a little bunch of nerds together and cause a little trouble because it's otherwise they're just going to run us the fuck over. Yeah, exactly. And, and like I was saying before, I think the publishing world is probably unique, is probably uniquely vulnerable to this, too, because especially the last few years, the way we've seen publishers react to online mobs is usually just to pull the book, pull the book that in question or, you know, do some other thing to to more or less ditch the book. And you could easily see that being weaponized by, you know, the audience of Quillette or the the gen the right in general to attack as you say degenerate art and if we don't have that critique ready if we aren't ready to to defend people who face this kind of mob uh it's going to be it's going to be a rough one no question about it and i mean you mentioned gamergate earlier and i watched that entire thing unfold that was kind of how i got into this kind of activism was watching that happen realizing what was going on and watching how easy it was for Milo and Sargon and the rest of those trolls to get away with what they were doing by exploiting liberal incredulity, basically. Um, and, you know, and yeah, they're absolutely going to do it now. And they're already doing it. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Quillette was targeting Sarah Bess by name, you know, and Sarah Bess, who is a poor trans woman who, you know, from what she tells me, lives in poverty and is not in any way capable of you know, have putting up an equal fight against a publication endorsed by the head Likudnik of the New York Times, Barry Weiss, um, which Quillette very much is, you know. So, yeah, I mean, they're you know, they're punching down at vulnerable people and they're using, you know, the various phobias of the right wing in this country to as a lever in order to do it. And, you know, it's not that I think Margrave or Sherlock or Massey hate anybody particularly really what they like they they're in it for fit for personal gain for money for clout for publications for sex for all of the other things that being a sort of semi-famous poet gives and as they've already demonstrated by their treatment of sarah bess like they're perfectly prepared to victimize vulnerable people in order to achieve it and you know sarah's a tough person and she can defend herself but not by her goddamn self against all yada da 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 so, you know, I mean, that was most of the reason why I got involved in the Quillette thing with Frank Sherlock in the first place, uh, you know, and like having Joe Massey suddenly reemerge like a fucking horror movie villain is even worse. And exactly the, th the thing that like I became worried about when I saw what was happening with Sherlock. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 about it's about solidarity with Sarah and all the people that they're going to come for. And to go back to the Gamergate thing, one of the things I like I can see very clearly as a parallel right now is during Gamergate, like the the people who had clout and were perpetuating it weren't just like you know random weren't weren't all just random you know online people who had just decided to you know start covering this this incipient right wing movement amongst gamers. 
It was people like Christina Hoff Summers, who at the time was affiliated with the American Enterprise Institute and already had the institutional money. It was just a pivot to this new this new hustle. And like you say, you know, and like, people are, are opportunists and they're coming in to get that money. And that's what's really worrying to me is that there is that money and they can keep doing this until they gain traction. Oh, I mean, yeah. And Gamergate was really obviously Milo Yiannopoulos specifically seeing what he could do and how much he could get away with. And, yeah, you know, yeah. that led directly into a lot of the online activity that helped put Trump in the White House a year or two later, or four years later, really. Um, you know, a lot of the same networks that were, it's about ethics and game journalism. Here, look at Zoe Quinn's nudes. Uh, were the same people like sharing Keck memes in 2015, 16. And they're the same people who are in the fucking Proud Boys now. And they, you know, that has happened because they have not been effectively resisted at any point along the way um, you know, and it's gotten to the point now where I feel like things are so threatening that personally and like as a member of the larger group of people threatened by fascism in this country, um, we've all sort of seemed to arrive at the point in the last year or so where like the liberals are basically just as much of a part of the problem for us as the fascists are. And if they're not going to at least get out of our way so we can deal with this, then they're putting themselves on the other side, basically. Yeah. And I guess, uh, to go back to the Milo thing, he's another good example of someone who had the institutional money. You know, he was, you know, BuzzFeed reported he was in league with the Mercers and he was tied to Breitbart. And, uh, and uh, he was Breitbart's uh, tech editor at the time that Gamergate happened. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, let me, oh, what was I going to say? Um, the, I think the, the problem with like the, the liberals in that situation too, because I remember, even back in, you know, I think, 2013-ish, uh, or during, say, the Elliot Rogers shooting, uh, a lot of the, the liberals were very much upset when people pointed, would, would say, oh, these, these guys are Nazis. You know, I remember at the time it was a common refrain to be like, among even some leftists in the Jacobin circle, to be like, oh, these, these people, they're, these SJWs, they're just saying everyone's a Nazi. And you fast forward, three and you fast forward out, three years, Lee and it Fang turns out they're all Nazis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Lee Fang was talking that shit yesterday from the Intercept. Who doesn't? Who doesn't <laughs> well, know shit about? Well, I mean, Lee, Lee, someone who seems particularly allergic to learning. But uh, but uh, yes. To go, I just wanted to ask you too about you know you said you started studying you know '30s fascism as a result of Gamergate and that sort of time period. So what exactly were you looking? So what exactly? Oh, well, I mean, basically it looked like it worked out like this. Like I was living in New York. I was having a miserable time. Gamergate happened. I, you know, I had been reading, I've been a, a reader of history for a long time. So when I started seeing fashy shit, I knew it for what it was. And so I started paying attention to it. And, you know, when, particularly with the way Anita Sarkeesian was targeted, like that was really alarming to me because I'd never really seen anything like that before in the United States, um, in my own lifetime anyway. So, you know, I basically got curious about who Milo was, and that rabbit hole led to Steve Bannon and the Mercers and all this other shit. Um, you know, and then by the time I got to the point where I was totally done with 
the poetry scene or whatever, I like sort of disappeared for about a year and went and hit out. And that was the point when I started looking at fascism, like sort of as a historical phenomenon going back, you know, I mean, at this point I'm trying to figure out where it starts. And like a lot of people, every time I think I found it, I will find myself having to push the date back by 30 years. Cause I hear about some other, usually United States law that is like fashy as fuck from like 1810 and it fucks my whole timeline up. Yeah. And I think that is important to remember is how central the U S is in the, uh, rise of global fascism and that doesn't really get discussed and i think what happens is you know you brought, i was reminded of an alice notley line earlier i think she wrote something to the effect in a poem of they always ask uh, what would you what would you have done during world war ii as if that would solve anything rather than start it and it, i think it kind of points to an idea that the u.s was got into World War II to defeat fascism, when in reality, that's obviously not the case. It was more to protect, protect you know, various geopolitical in- interests. And it glosses over the fact that the U.S. in many ways is the origin point for most fascist movements, going back, as, going you, back, say, as you said, to 1810. Or, I mean, really even before, you know, I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that the history of fascism begins with the history of white people arriving somewhere other than Europe and going, oh, this is my shit. Um, you know, but like in particular with the, the U.S., you know, I, I, like I'm, I'm working on an essay right now about the businessman's plot. And it's amazing how, how many of the people at the highest levels of American society were doctrinaire fascists who did open business with the Italian and the German fascists in the 20s and the 30s. And, you know, our intelligence apparatus became very, very cozy with aspects of the German intelligence apparatus at the end of the Second World War. And the, like the pivot from fighting fascism to the Cold War is quite obviously tremendously important uh, in that regard. And how the, I mean, it's a very complicated story that basically involves the, polit- the politics of Alan Dulles and his Wall Street friends, all of whom were sort of the core of the CIA. And virtually all of them were doctrinaire Nazis at one point or another in their life. And if they weren't overt Nazis, they were very low-key sort of collaborators. Right, and that points to the history in the Cold War, especially of the United States supporting fascists to prevent communists from gaining power. And I think, again, that's why it's difficult to rely on liberals in this situation, or even people who might pretend to be democratic socialists like Li Fong. And it's, it's a dangerous situation when you have, when you have like a growing leftist movement and a growing fascist movement that has, like you could say has power now. And, you know, it's, we face a lot of danger. That's absolutely the case. And I mean, people face physical danger, um, you know, but like there's also the sort of like, the political danger of the entire country being dragged even further into the right and into fascism and into open suppression of undesirables, which has already started. We already have concentration camps, et cetera. And like, you know, it's for something like this to happen in a place like Germany is one thing, you know, but there's no immense powerful nation right next to us that could invade us if some shit got crazy, you know, like it's, if this country goes like full fascist, it's going to be able to run its full course. And the effect that that will have on the future of humanity is really like not even to be contemplated, I would say. It's really, really grim shit. 
Yeah, I mean, the U.S. alone could probably uh, fuel a climate catastrophe, not to mention the war machine that the United States has. And, and it's links to various Central American and South American governments, and it will continue to protect those interests down there in order to fund the, you know, continue the war machine and line Wall Street pockets. And, you know, liberal you know, poets are complicit in that by accepting that funding, as you said earlier. There's never, there's never, there's no incentive to critique that or even look at that. It, and critiquing it is a good way to get yourself just sort of politely shown the door. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely like really alarming how the, the whole thing sort of hinges on rich people's hatred of poor people. You know, it's really just as simple as that. You know, they've got, I was, re- one of the things, I forget what I was reading, it was some George Seldes article or something. Uh, and he quoted some fashy person, some rich fashy person in the 30s as saying, well, look, I've got $30 million and either you guys can come and take it or I can spend half of it keeping the other half. You know, and that's the way they look at it. And they don't like that, you know, that, did you see that Brett Stevens op-ed recently in the New York Times? You know, you know I, I, I try not to read any of those, but I, I'm aware. What, what, what happened? What, what, what happened on Reddit? Well, it's, you know, it was basically his, he was freaking out about the Democratic Party going, quote, too far to the left. And, you know, it's one of these well-intentioned Republicans warning the Democrats, you know, I just want to help you guys win elections, even though I've been your enemy my whole life or whatever. But the rhetoric in the Brett Stevens thing was overtly, openly fascist. And the hatred for poor people, people of color, anybody different than him, anybody but a white Anglo-Saxon, was so apparent that I was really genuinely shocked that even the New York Times would run it. It was really, really, really overt. Yeah, I think the New York Times crossed that bridge a while ago. I, you know, I remember that, so I think it was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek, Ross Douthat article about like redistributing sex or something. And, you know, it just speaks to, again, the pathology. Well, I don't want to say pathologies, but it, it speaks to the, the the mindset of some of these rich folks at the top who are, you know, fa- who faced with, as you said, the prospect of losing their money will pay off anyone to keep it. And again, it raises the question of, you know, we, we really do need to ask the po- these poets who accept that money or have these institutional ties what what they think they're involved in because you see more and more poets becoming ingratiated into, into the uh, literary establishment. Now, you know, you see long poems being published in the New Yorker that are supposedly against imperialism. You know, it's this, this the same publication that's like, Oh, war with Iran would be cool. Right. And there's never any question of what, 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 they're actually what what is actually the function of publishing those poems in that in those uh places right and you know i mean it's it's a weird sort of cognitive dissonance in the particularly in the poets that i knew on the east coast because on the one hand there's this feeling that they have a very special relationship with wokeness that they're the people who understand what is good and right and fair and they have the you know there's a very a very high opinion of everybody's morals circulates in that scene. But if you call them on it, on anything that they do being problematic on on a political level, especially on the political level of like, how can you justify taking corporate blood money? uh, Then all of a sudden it doesn't matter. 
then all of a sudden they're just one individual person just trying to make it, you know? And like, it's really disingenuous white people bullshit, basically, that, you know, tries to have, have everything without really having any of the responsibilities for it. You know, like a bunch of, like I got really sick in 2015. I was in bed for a year. <laughs> and when I got up, the black neighborhood two blocks away from my house no longer existed. In the year that I was in bed, it had been gentrified out of existence. And 10 or 12 people I knew lived over there now. And I was really pissed off about it. And they really thought that I was an asinine little twerp. Because, well, you know, gentrification happens above the consumer level and all of this other bullshit rationalization that goes on. Like, they're never, like, you know, it's the same problem that I think that we encounter with liberals across the board in this particular moment. Like, if you're a leftist, if you're a serious anti-fascist, and you understand what the situation in this country really is, then you know what side you're on. And these folks who want to stand in the middle and equivocate, like what they're actually doing is refereeing on behalf of some kind of fake objectivity or truth. But what they're really doing is defending their own personal comfort without having the, you know, the respectable chutzpah of a fascist to declare themselves, um, you know, with whom one can at least have an open fight. Um, you know, I'd much rather deal with five or six Proud Boys between me and my friends than 25 bullshit grad student poets who, you know, basically are all trying to fuck each other over for that one tenure job and pretending to be a community while they do it. Yeah. And I guess, too, one thing I wanted to ask you about was you ended the thing you wrote with... Uh... Ewell, Envy, and Ed Dorn before this is o over. Uh, I guess... Uh, I guess... Uh, what you... Oh, well, Ed Dorn was one of the first poets who got canceled for political reasons in the 70s. He got canceled for being a homophobe uh, in, like, the late 70s. And it was part of the Naropa poetry wars that went on, like, 76 or so through about 84. Right. Right. And... Did you mean to... Uh... You are, so you're implying uh, that, this, that a worse fate awaits the uh, fascists over at Quillette then? Yes, certainly. Because Ed Dorn had the good sense to stay canceled. <laughs> you know, he didn't at some point put himself in touch with George Lincoln Rockwell and join the American Nazi Party or whatever. That's an anachronism because Rockwell was dead by then. But, you know, he could, like... He could have done a num numerous things, and what he did was he took the L and he fucked off and he stayed gone. And he continued to write and he published here and there, but he didn't, you know, like he didn't do what Massey has done and what Frank Sherlock has done, where in the effort to keep the, the, the platform that they have no right to, what they do is they put themselves directly in bed with alt-right and fascist elements. Uh, you know, because like, and Ed Dorn never did anything like that that I'm aware of. Ed Dorn was a, a prick and a homophobe who got called out on it and canceled. And there was a big fight at Naropa over it and he lost and then he fucking went away. Um, so the, yeah, basically like quiet retirement a la Ed Dorn, which both Massey and Sherlock have just rejected in favor of putting themselves in league with fascism. Um, Hopefully, if we lean on them hard enough, it, that we can make the Ed Dorn method look pretty good to them, and maybe they'll fuck off and shut up and leave people alone.
Yeah, because at the end of the day, a lot of these poets are mostly concerned with their reputation. And if you can show enough force to them, sometimes they will just realize, maybe it's best if I just uh, take a quiet exit now. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, you know, it, nothing like the current problem with Quillette as a, as a publication and with the alt-right and Trump, that didn't really exist in the 70s and 80s. You know, yes, there were lots of fasci organizations and the Reagan administration was at least as problematic to them as the Trump administration is to us. But um, there wasn't the same kind of overt fascification of the whole culture going on in 79, 80, 81 to the extent that it is now. Um, so there really wasn't any Quillette for Ed Dorn to go write for, you know, but like watching Quillette who you know, I mean, Claire Lehman was in, the editor of that, was in Barry Weiss's Intellectual Dark Web article. Um, she's very much, like, in that reactionary intellectual gang that they're also vain about. Uh, and she's clearly got a plan, you know. And she went, and the first writer she picked up, and nobody noticed it, because who the fuck ever heard of Clint Margrave, was Clint Margrave, uh, who, if you... Get it. If you look into Clint Margrave, what you find is that he basically is an MRA. He's got a poetry book called uh, On the Early Death of Men, which is a men's rights activist talking point, like straight out of the red pill or any of their other bullshit. Um, so I imagine he, Margrave, I don't know this for a fact, but I would imagine that he has had his own issues socially with his behavior and uh, maybe people not being receptive to his men's rights poetry. So he was available and interested uh, to be uh, you know, brought on staff at Quillette. And then he's the person who wrote the Frank Sherlock article. And I would bet any amount of money at all that Sherlock is the person who brought Joe Massey to their attention. Because Joe Massey has been social, socially involved in Philadelphia off and on for a long, long time. Yeah, this was something I meant to bring up too, but something that... It... You know, there's also there's the long history of fascism in U.S. literary institutions, but there's also a really long history of misogyny there as well. And I think what could be perhaps really worrying about this is how many more writers probably could be attracted to the Quillette side of the the the, the fight because because of uh, because of cancellations and you know there there is this history for them to draw on in U.S. literary culture that I that I think is probably going to be attractive to a lot of you know young men a la Casa Pound in Italy well right and you know the existence of, of a, a, a the Casa Pound is a very hardcore fascist formation they are thuggish yeah. street yeah. fighters yeah. they like I mean they make the Proud Boys look like my chihuahua next to a Rottweiler um, you know and no one wants to talk about that the fact that that person, an American poet, is the person who this Italian fascist organization has taken for their namesake and their hero. That, you know, and I was thinking specifically of Casa Pound with the idea of the George Oppen Brigade. Um, you know, because like, that's how you deal with those motherfuckers. You drop your pen and you go and you deal with them. Um, but, you know, I think that if you look at Europe in 1939 or 40, like at the height of historical fascism, the literary and artsy people in Europe at the time were split almost right down the middle between left and right. And there were a lot of fascists who were writers, artists, poets. That history has become somewhat obscured because so many of them survived the war and then had to sort of conceal that later. 
uh, or whatever. But, you know, I mean, Picasso lived very comfortably in occupied Paris and sold his paintings to German officers. No one wants to talk about that. Newt Hampson, of course, we all know was a doctrinaire fascist, but James Joyce had overt fascist sympathies. Um, you know, and that was one of the reasons why his relationship with Beckett fell apart, because Beckett was 100% on in the resistance and an active fighter. Um, you know, and like to take a, a, a role like Beckett took upon himself was viewed as rather vulgar by the people around Joyce. You know, it's just politics. It's just not something you get involved in. Um, which is odd coming from, from a person who had celebrated Parnell to some extent as he was, when he was a younger person. Uh, you know, but Pound and Elliot and, and a lot of those guys, those guys were fascists and they're, you know, we're supposed to respect them and understand why Pound was given the Bollinger and have some sympathy for his madness, which is a very interesting argument that Joe Massey has copied. You know, meanwhile, like, people have been taking shits on, on Ernest Hemingway for 50 years for a lot of right-on things because he was a problematic son of a bitch, but he was the most prominent American writer who was 100% right about fascism, and he was one of the only American writers who fought in Spain. Yeah, and I think this brings us to a question, like a, a problem for liberals is increasingly, it, as it was argued during the 30s by you know various communist publications that you know, socialism or, or let me say uh, communism or fascism is a choice that everyone faces, even writers. And, you know, I think as you as you've detailed in both the, the manifesto and this conversation, like liberals just re will refuse in order to try and maintain the status quo to try and continue their careers and continue their clout chasing. Because there's money in it for them, and they want it, and they don't want their pursuit of gain disrupted by anything as like vulgar as a war over who has the right to live or not. Yeah, and I mean, if that's and if that's the case, I mean, like like you saying here, we got it's it's as much fighting the liberals as it is fighting the fascists. Yeah, very much so. And, uh, you know, I think that that has been the case for a long time. Of course, the Socialist Party famously sold out Rosa Luxemburg, which is very well known. Less well known is that there was a big strike in the Marseille docks that turned into a general strike in France in 47, 48. Uh, and the socialist government of Marseille collaborated with the CIA and the Corsican mafia to break that strike. And as a result, they were rewarded with the favors of the CIA for 20 or 30 years after that. Um, so, I mean, there's a reason why people are suspicious of social Democrats. There's a lot of historical reason for it. And you don't even have to go into the past. I mean, it wasn't as long ago as the airport protests when Trump first put in the Muslim ban. There was a big protest in Seattle. There were a couple of hundred, five, six, seven hundred people there. The Socialist Alternative Councilman from Seattle showed up, led the socialists out after negotiating with the police, and the police beat the shit out of every anarchist in the airport and arrested them all. And that is exactly the dynamic that we're talking about. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's like what we're fighting against mostly, and it's why solidarity is so important. Because, you know, it, if anyone breaks ranks, that is what we face. You know, it's... You know, it's... No, go on. Oh, I, was, I spent last, most of last night reading Diane de Prima's Revolutionary Letters, which I think are a really, really interesting document. Um, and, you know, thank you to Mr. Pease for providing that PDF to me and to the rest of us. Uh, 
you know, and those like those are amazing. Like that's what I, like, you know, those are poems that are designed to teach people how to be revolutionaries. Those are didactic revolutionary poems about how much food to store and how to hide fugitives and all these other very practical revolutionary things. And, you know, I mean, I remember reading that years ago and being like, huh, about it and hearing people say rude things about it being silly and like LARPy wasn't really a word people use then, but something like that. You know, but it's, you know, in 2019, those poems look a hell of a lot more relevant to me than I would have ever imagined five or 10 years ago that they would um, because of the practical stuff that's in them. And, it, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the, the, you know, the poetry shit, you know, I'm certainly not advocating anything more violent than a milkshake. Uh, although if somebody wanted to milkshake Joe Massey, I would love that. And if I get the opportunity. Uh, but the the model of the Black Panther Party or the Weather Underground or some of the serious urban guerrilla movements from the 70s uh, is a good one in that it's small group dynamics. You limit all kinds of problems when it's three or four or five people that you know and that you have known and that you trust, you know, and then instead of performing acts of egregious terroristic violence, uh, you know, showing up and making it impossible for Joe Massey to do a reading uh, is a perfectly noble pursuit, in my opinion. Um, you know, uh, like, it's, it's just time to get in their motherfucking faces, like, full stop. And if, like, you know, and if what happens is what I think is going to happen, um, when they encounter a little serious resistance, the mask is going to come off real fast. And then you're going to have the old bloody jowled wolf uh, back all over again. Um, and it's, you know, not terribly surprising, I suppose. But the, the total uselessness of the majority of the white liberal poets in this country for anything like this, this struggle is overwhelmingly apparent, I think, to just about everybody, even tangentially affiliated right. with Paint Bucket, right. at, a, at the very least. Yeah, so you mentioned Diane de Prima and you were saying about her didactic poems. Well, who are some other like poets you look to in that regard? Because as you mentioned, I think at the beginning, you kind of were trying to move away from poetry, but you've been drawn back in. So I guess what drew you back in and what kind of poet, who, who are you looking to other than, you know, Diane de Prima and uh, George Oppen? Uh, you know, I think that the the poets that are, like sort of have lit me up the most politically have almost all been Latin Americans. Um, you know, get, learning Spanish well enough to read whatever I wanted was one of the few good decisions I ever made because it enabled me to get in touch with a, with kind, group dynamics in poetry that were very different than what was going on in Philly or New York at the time, circa early 2000s. Um, so the infrarealists, probably first and foremost, more particularly Mario Santiago, really, than Roberto, although Roberto too. But there are eight or ten poets who are affiliated with that group, some of whom are women, some of whom are indigenous people, all of whom are extremely, uh, extremely interesting. Um, the, you know, the people whose manifestos and other work I translated would all go on that list. Most especially, though, for me, I would say the neo-Baroque poets, especially Osvaldo Lamborghini and Nestor Perlonger, who are both people who, you know, their, their idea of how to fuse Marx and Lacan is to film them fucking and make a porno out of it and call that a poem. And it's really, really interesting uh, politically, socially, uh, you know, and aesthetically, just on the le the plastic level of the language on the page, Osvaldo has got it over nearly everybody. Osvaldo is capable of really tremendous music, 
to such an extent that his poems are functionally untranslatable, really. Um, and for longer, too, although to a lesser extent. So those guys have been really big for me. Um, Oppen, I've been reading this week with a view of just, he's just been on my mind a lot with all these fashy poets uh, or whatever. Um, you know, I was always a big Frank O'Hara guy, but I feel like that is waning in the, in the heat of the current moment to some extent. Um, and then the infrarealists, uh, the, uh, the stridentists from Mexico, of whom, you know, probably the only noteworthy thing I've ever done was translating Maple's Arce for Ugly Duckling Press a few years ago. But there were two or three other people in that group who were much more serious about their communism than Maple's Arce was, especially Herman Litz Arzubide uh, and Arqueles Bella. Um, they're both excellent writers. Arqueles Bella was a prose writer. Uh, Litz was a, was a poet. Uh, and they, you know, I mean, they're writing for masses of poor and indigenous people fighting uh, you know, what Che rightly called a struggle to the death uh, against their enemies. And that's who these people, like, you know, Joseph Massey, Frank Sherlock, Claire Lehman, Clint Margrave, the editors of Quillette, and anybody who wants to get on the side of them, those people are our enemies. They intend us bodily, social, cultural, and psychic death. Um, you know, and our liberal friends are their friends. They are not our friends. They will sell us out just so they can go home and watch Game of Thrones again. They don't care yep. about anything. Yeah, so I yeah, guess so I... Cause probably most people listening to this are going to be people who speak English. What are some translations of some of those works you mentioned? Like, where, where, what's available of, of, those, of those folks? Uh, Wave did a Mario Santiago book called Advice from a, a, a Marx Disciple to a Heidegger Fanatic. Uh, that uh, my friend Cole translated excellently well. Um, that is out and very good. Um, the chat book that I did for Ugly Duckling and Mabel's Arce can just be downloaded for free from their website. There's an, another longer book of, their, of that stuff coming out at some point whenever we decide to get our shit together on it. Uh, you know, I mean, oh, I forgot to mention Roque Dalton, who I think I should circle back around and make special mention of, because Roque Dalton was a serious communist. He was a serious guerrilla fighter. He was killed by members of his own group over bullshit. Um, he was, you know, in Central America resisting American fascism with a gun, uh, as, as you know, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, his stuff is really hard to find in English. Um, almost all of the good communist stuff, like Jose Revueltas, uh, that some of Jose Revueltas is from Mexico. He's probably available now. I think uh, Elapando has been translated. I, I don't know the English title, but I did see the book at one point. And New Directions has one or two other books by Jose Revueltas. Um, you know, Roque Dalton is around. Uh, there's, I, you know, off the top of my head, I don't remember any of the English editions, but I recall them not being terrible. A lot of the rest of that stuff, though, really hasn't been translated much at all. I did a lot of it, and a lot of it hit the cutting room floor over copyright issues. Um, you know, the the nature of copyright law is one of the major ways that the people who own the means of, con of literary production control what we do and do not get to read. Uh, and that is, to, in my mind, a serious problem. Um, so anybody who's really, like, looks around and can't maybe find anything, uh, my email is, my secure email is on my Twitter feed, which is just at, at Carl Cassia. Um, anybody who hits me up will find that there's plenty available to them via PDF uh, if they're interested in it. Uh, beyond that, I think that um, 
you know, there's some decent translations of Nestor Prolonger being done by some old associates of mine uh, that I read recently that I thought were okay. Right. Yes. Oh, sorry. I think I cut out for a minute there. Uh, my little green light was on the whole time. I was just basically talking about um, the unfortunate necessity of learning foreign languages because the, the, the bouge are the people who stand in between us and the rest of the working class people in the world, and they're obviously not going to tell us the truth. Yeah, no, keep keep going on. Don't, don't let me interrupt. Available, but it's like, you know, stuff that I couldn't publish if I wanted to, which is, you know... Stuff I've been circulating in manuscript, like I'm fucking Sir Philip Sidney or something, for 10 or 15 years. I think you guys saw the Nicanor Para manuscript that I did. Um, I've got manuscripts slightly smaller than that for a bunch of this stuff. And I'm still reasonably well-connected from uh, the, the translation get gutter and ghetto. Um, that when people do decent work on this stuff, it's not that hard to find. But a lot of the stuff is really difficult to run down in English. Um, you know, Gonzalo Arango was the, the head guy in the nothingist movement in Colombia. There's been some stuff by him floating around. Um, my friend Garrett, who edits Asymptote, has worked on some of it. Um, I had some of it in a magazine, a magazine called Mildred Pierce a number of years ago, which can probably still be located. Um, but yeah, anybody who's not satisfied with what they can find can literally just hit me up and I will send them some shit. Yeah, I think it's really important to read some of that writing, especially given the U.S.'s relationship with Latin America and its, you know, the exploitation and promotion of fascism in those various countries. You know, you're even seeing that now in uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, even though that's, you know, not a Spanish-speaking country. I think it's worth mentioning, and especially, and again, as leftists, if we take, say, uh, the discourse on colonialism seriously or Malcolm X's idea of the chickens coming home to roost, you know, there's more than enough reason to read some of these writers and figure out how they resisted and try and learn what we can from them. Well, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, in, in the context of Brazil, uh, you know, it's Brazil is a tremendously important country for numerous reasons. And there are shitloads of excellent writers from Brazil. A guy who's currently alive by the name of Pedro Bomba, B-O-M-B-A, is to be YouTubed whether you speak Portuguese or not, because it's not really necessary. Uh, he's got a poem called Amor Coragem, which is a tremendously beautiful piece of work. And he's got lots of videos up. And he's one of these sort of street-level writers who most of his readings are at parties, um, you know, which was another thing that was interesting and troubling to me was how formalized the, the ritual of the poetry reading had become when I was around it a lot and how difficult it was to sort of break out of that and how uncomfortable it would make people when you would do weird things in the context of a poetry reading. Um, and, you know, and like, you know, I had friends who did unusual things at poetry readings and earned for themselves the never ending enmity of the host ever after, you know, and it's like, we're trying to have a good time would be the kind of things that you would say. So like these, these poetry readings have become very problematic institutions just in general, I think, um, it's a very, like, you know, the whole thing, like the coffee shop, yada, da, 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 like the, you know, the no, the very white liberal, no money changing hand thing. You know, if you go to a black neighborhood to a poetry reading, they expect you to pay because they pay the readers. In white poetry world, it's assumed that everybody's got money and we're just not going to talk about it. 
so you know it's a really yeah. weird yeah. another really weird difference but like the you know watching pedro bomba videos was like a really re really revelatory experience to me because it's literally just some bitch filmed it on her phone while he was reading at a party and everybody thought it was the shit you know what i mean he's he's no, he's got the shit memorized he's reciting it like in the middle like they'll t they'll cut the music off for a minute and pedro will do a poem and then everybody will start dancing again um you know and shit like that like is really interesting as compared to another brazilian poet who i don't dislike in any way maria regenge who is much more like an american poet in a lot of ways who's a very like sort of quiet adult well-mannered sort of like i sit on a stool and very quietly read my poems to you kind of scene um you know it's impossible to imagine maria regenge throwing a molotov cocktail it's entirely possible to imagine pedro bomba earning the name bomba by throwing molotov cocktails and that to me is the difference between the kind of poets i want to hang out with and not yeah that's a good test uh, whether or not you can picture someone throwing a molotov cocktail you know that whole the discussion about the parties reminds me of uh, Poetry is Not a Project by uh, Lasky. And the attitude that, you know, again, politics ruins the, these kind of experiences for, for liberals. And I think, though, um, do you have, I, want to, I want to, before we get off this topic, do you have any other uh, Brazilian recommendations, not to put you on the spot? Pedro is the big one. Um, you know, the the other big Brazilian re recommendation just off the top of my head is MC Carroll, who is this glorious large woman from a favela, I believe in Rio, who raps about how much she likes to fuck and how cool it is to be a big girl. And, you know, it's a very interesting kind of, there's a very interesting kind of hip hop being made in, in the poor neighborhoods in Rio out of, you know, remixed YouTube videos in a lot of cases. There's a really notorious one, uh, which is called O Sangre de Jesus Tempoder, uh, which is literally just like a weird song made out of a video of an evangelical Brazilian woman like freaking out about the blood of Jesus. And somebody like auto-tuned it into a melody and mixed it into a really hilarious pop song and then made like a really fucking crazy video out of it. And it's really amazing stuff. And it's so much more interesting to me than anybody's lyric poetry. Yeah, I went to an exhibit of, I think, radical uh, women artists from the, I want to say, like, the 60s to the 80s. And um, that, that tradition you're describing was very much alive in, in Brazil back then, too. It's, it's interesting that to hear you describe it, uh, their style is like that um, style being still practiced today. It's some really cool shit. I mean, there's there's another video that's, uh, you know, basically just like footage of trans girls hanging out in Rio with this like song playing over the top of it about how cool they are. And like the videos cut to the beat in these really amusing ways. And, you know, it's basically just like the same garbage culture that is represented by the cartonera thing, which is basically people making books out of garbage um, and giving them away. And that's been a huge thing in Latin America for 15 or 20 years now. Um, you know, and usually the covers are made of cardboard. I have one that somebody gave me from Brazil, which is uh, Arolo do Campos. And it's a wickedly cool little thing, basically made out of like a zine stuck inside of, of two pieces of cardboard with a spine basically made out of duct tape, you know? And like, but 
you know, I always self-published. I always made zines. I came out of punk rock. I was a big zine guy as a kid. And when I got around the grown-up poets, nothing had any meaning at all unless somebody else spent money on it. Nothing had any meaning at all unless it had a spine and an ISBN. You weren't a real poet otherwise. And that to me was just the worst kind of fucking bullshit, like imaginable. And it was, it never changed. I mean, I made zines regularly through that whole period. And then later I just started doing PDFs. And people were like, why are you doing this? This is garbage. This isn't cool. This is not, I like books. I like books. And it's like, well, great. But like, I put out two books one year, one on uh, Ugly Duckling and another one on a press called Truck, which very nice people run. That's still available. What were the, well, two, books? What were the two books? Uh, the, the one was the Maples Arce one, the translation of, of uh, City Bolshevik Super Poem and Five Cantos. And the, the book of my poems, which was out under my dead name, was uh, called The Sorrows of Young Worthless. Those came out the same year, they came out in the same summer. And all together, total, there were 300 copies of those two books. And that's just the way the book game is, you know? And I'm not yeah. pissed at anybody yeah. who, who was involved in, you know, Kristen and Chris and Matt Vey are people I still respect a great deal. That's, you know, they did wonderfully kind things for me. The point was though, that like, you know, 300 total copies is a small amount of shit. I can make a PDF and 300 people can read it in a day. Uh, and there's just yeah. no compare, like, you know, yeah. no comparing that. And it became clear to me that it wasn't about writing and it wasn't about being read. It was about achieving, you know, gold stars, getting rewards, getting A grades in the form of like books and grants and serious poet bullshit and, you know, visiting writerships and shit. That's what actually mattered. And the writing was secondary to a lot of people, you know, I, I probably seem like yeah, a it's complete about maniac resume. Yeah, it's shit. about building. No, no, I understand what you're saying. Books are more about writing for the and your position. You can talk about the archive. They put out like, seem like 10 books. Cause I never see them where they look at their catalog. They put the books and yeah, I mean, it, it's, and, you know, this was not really, we weren't really talking about the climate as much when I was having this conversation a lot, but especially now, like, what is the justification for all that paper and ink? What is the justification for all of the transportation and the, you know, the whole infrastructure of making paper books? Like, like, what is the fucking point? And the only thing anybody ever said to me was like, oh, well, people who don't have access to devices can't read it then. And it's like, Okay, look, you're doing that thing again where you're like, don't, don't sit here and pretend like you care about poor people in Africa. Like, you don't give a shit about poor people in Africa. You know, like, and my, all of my poems that I wrote, like, I put them in two big packages as PDFs, and I put them all in the public domain, which, where they remain and where they will stay. And the people around me in Philly thought I was completely out of my fucking mind when I did that. And I just kept saying to them, you do not get it. Like, this is the way, this is the thing that I can do that ensures that anybody anywhere who wants to fuck with this shit can. All they have to do is want to do it. So if somebody in India wants to make a PDF out of one of their, or wants to make a chapbook out of some of those poems, they're legally able to do it. If somebody in Kenya or something wants to do the same, great. If somebody in Vietnam wants to translate it, fine. You know, it was the only thing that I could think of that I could do that would get me out from under the fucking publishing cop and publishing is a cop and copyright is a cop and 
everybody, all these motherfuckers love cops. And I just don't. And we're never going to agree on that. Yeah, I, it's true. And I think that, like, you know, we're fucking morons if we don't take a lesson from all of the people all over the world for whom the AK-47 was perfectly sufficient and make a, you know, make a poetry culture that produces things that serve the people the way that the AK has served the people, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's about um, reaching people can reach them and making, and making do with what we have. And it's, and, you know, we don't have the publishing industry. The publishing industry is not on our side. As you said, they are, they're cops. They're literally cops. They, you know, they enforce copyright. That's their job. That's how they make money. It's not, it has nothing to do with art as they like pretend. Oh yeah. It's a scam. And I mean, all you really need to know to figure that out is where everybody who works in New York publishing all went to school. Like if you go through the CVs of any of the medium sized houses, and look at, it's just Ivy, 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 all over the fucking place. And that's not a coincidence. Yeah, and as you said earlier, I mean, I can't imagine any of these people throwing a Molotov cocktail. Very true, very true. So I wonder if we could perhaps move towards wrapping this up as, A, we've been on here for a long time, and two, a guest has <laughs> arrived at my house in, yeah. the, in the meantime, yeah. who's been very politely waiting through about half of this. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to have kept you. I'm, I'm up past my bedtime as well. well. Oh, no, this is great. Like, I, and I'd be happy if you know if you edit it together and you have follow ups or whatever. I'd absolutely do another round. No problem. Yeah, I think the thing about podcasts is we just are not going to edit it, and we will. <laughs> and I will definitely be sure to talk to you again because I'm sure there will be another occasion, or I will read some of the things you've translated and have questions. I think that's probably something I'm definitely going to do. I definitely want to try and talk to as many people about their work as they can specifically and not just, you know, the the political situation we find ourselves in, as important as that is. So I guess uh, you have any uh, concluding thoughts or want to share how people can reach you and all that? Uh, well, I'm mostly on Twitter at Carl Cassia, uh, K-A-R-L-C-A-S-C-I-A. Um... I am at some point here in the near future going to reissue my poems in slightly revised forms because I found a bunch of typos and a bunch of other bullshit. Um, so, and I, you know, a friend of mine in Philly who has since transitioned uh, re-released all of their poems with their non-dead name on it. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to do that too. So uh, that'll be probably the, uh, in a month or so those will be done. Um, so, you know, those will probably just be floating around on my Twitter, like downloadable for my Google Drive or whatever. Um, and in the meantime, I'm just gonna, like, you know, disturb some shit, uh, as best I can, uh, under the banner of the George Oppen Brigade. I will be visiting Philly in the fall. I will not specify when, but my friends there should know that I will be floating around. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm probably for the best not to specify that kind of thing. And uh, I guess uh, people can reach me at uh, at creeping Marxist. Marxist is spelled M R A X I S T. Sorry, it's getting late. I almost couldn't make it through that. It's, it's spelled wrong because I couldn't get the other one. And like like uh, Carl said, if you want to read anything I've written, I have two write poems. Uh, you can just DM me and I'll send them along.